Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada's Defense Minister has announced a new round of military aid for Ukraine. Is it enough? And is it too late? How unprepared is Canada for the growing national security threats? There's a new report out about that. And we chat about the terrible food crisis surrounding Canada. Mike Van Massow, who's the OAC Chair in Food System Leadership, will join us to discuss that. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Canada is sending more aid to Ukraine. Uh, Defense Minister Anita Anand has announced more military aid for Ukraine. Speaking of Victoria yesterday, she says that Canada is going to donate 20,000 artillery rounds of 150-millimeter NATO standard ammunition. Now, here's what the minister had to say. We have supplied Ukraine with small arms, specialized equipment like cameras for military drones, armored vehicles, and the heavy artillery guns I mentioned, namely M777 howitzers. And Canada has trained Ukrainian forces in the use of these heavy artillery guns. Good news. Good to know that the support is going to be there. But is it enough? And is it timely? Uh, to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Professor Aurel Brown, who is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Mug School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Good morning. This is interesting news, uh, Professor, about uh, the minister making the announcement yesterday about munitions and, and some other stuff. But some of the experts uh, from Ukraine who have been fighting this battle, uh, the question they seem to be asking, I guess somewhat rhetorically right now, is where were you when we really needed you a couple of months ago? What could have been and should have been uh, just isn't happening. Is NATO doing everything that they can and should be doing to try to, uh, to support Ukraine? They seem to be doing the right thing a day late and this is the problem that uh, the sequence has to be right we probably would not be where we are it would not be such a desperate situation had nato particularly united states acted more quickly more decisively in the case of canada my understanding is that this 98 million dollar um, allocation of aid is part of what was announced earlier of 500 million dollars which sounds like a good deal of money unless we put it in the context of the rate of expenditure of ammunition and of losses of uh, military equipment in what is a very large conflict. Russia continues to use massive forces. Right now, Ukraine is perhaps under more military pressure than ever before because Russia has given up around the area of Kiev and much of Kharkiv but now they have concentrated their force, concentrated their forces in the east, and they are brutally shelling, really devastating villages, small cities, in order to get uh, a hold over all of the Donbass, and they want to encircle large Ukrainian forces. So the danger has not passed. The need for military aid is uh, extremely urgent, and everything helps, but more and more needs to be done. And I think that's echoed in the comments from President Zelensky over the last couple of times that he's addressed to all the United Nations and, and other agencies, uh, isn't it, Professor? But he essentially is saying, look, at, you know, uh, these Ukrainians, especially the citizenry, that have died, didn't necessarily have to die. We asked for this stuff even before the invasion started. And, and NATO seemed to be dragging their heels at that time. You uh, note uh, correctly that uh, NATO has dragged its heels. 
And uh, in the early phases, the Germans were not providing anything, even in terms of viable defensive weapons. Now that is changing, but it's changing rather slowly. And when you look at sanctions, and sanctions are supposed to work together with military help to try to weaken the Russian economy, to bring home to especially the Russian elites, but eventually to the Russian population, which is still by and large, uh, apparently is supporting this, uh, what Russia called special military operation, that this in fact is a strategic catastrophe for Russia. Uh, those sanctions are not enough. Uh, at Davos, President Zelensky said that he wants to see maximum sanctions. And he was specific about the fact that you need to put on uh, oil uh, in a complete sanction list, as well as eventually natural gas. Russia has been able to raise more money from energy sales, particularly oil this year, than it did last year, despite the sanctions, because oil prices are so high. And there's hesitation on the part of some countries like Hungary, led by Viktor Orban, who is a friend of Vladimir Putin's, to impose oil sanctions. And uh, the Europeans are trying to find a solution to that. And Zelensky wants that done as quickly as possible. Uh, there are Russian banks that are still not fully sanctioned. And Zelensky called for that as well. And of course, he wanted to see Western unity because the flow of armaments has to be continuous. Uh, as I noted, the rate of expenditure of ammunition and loss of uh, weapons, which is uh, the normal uh, development in a large-scale war, is, is very, very, very high. So uh, I'm sure the Ukrainians are very grateful to Canada for what we're giving them, but I don't think we can blame them if they're saying, where were you earlier and why are you not doing more? Well, one American general was quoted as saying yesterday that uh, he thought that uh, Canada was dragging their heels. And, and as you say, they were probably a day late doing all this stuff. And he says it's almost as bad as the U.S. reaction to this, too. So, I mean, he's he's putting them both in the same pot here. And they said, especially the U.S., which is trying to reassert itself, of course, with NATO after the Trump administration. Uh, and this was an opportunity for them. And he said an opportunity lost where they should have been there faster. They should have been there with better intelligence about what was going to happen. Uh, and and the, he feels as if NATO itself has let Ukraine down because of of the expectation, and and I know that you and I have talked about this in the past, Professor. The I I, I understand the concern. I think we all understand the concern that NATO had uh, about uh, you know Ukraine not being a NATO member, and you know we can't cross that border, we can't get involved in that, uh, but. We really let the Russians get a foothold in that country for, for the longest time before we started to react probably the way we should have. Ukraine is not a NATO member, and certainly Kiev could not expect the same kind of help that a NATO member state would be entitled to. This is one of the reasons why Ukraine wanted to and would still like to become a member of the alliance, as unlikely as that appears to be at the moment. But it is not a... Uh, line that is absolutely solid where we can say that yes we will protect up to the borders of NATO and that we do not really care what happens beyond that because this is what the Russians were reading basically this is what Vladimir Putin believed would happen that looking at, at the statements made by the American president that uh, there would be no American troops, that there would be no direct involvement against Russian forces. 
which of course stated the obvious and which was uh, a reality, but by stating it in such a stark form, it created the impression that it was a green light, that it was either you were a member of NATO and you were protected, or you were outside the alliance and you had no protection whatsoever. And that's not how deterrence ought to work. Deterrence is a subtle psychological relationship where you want the other side to engage in a type of cost-benefit calculus where they come to the conclusion that whatever they may gain will be so costly that it's not worth it. And clearly, we have allowed Russia to, to do a different kind of calculation. And yes, the American president correctly predicted that there would be an invasion, but he certainly did not prevent it. So we need to learn lessons and it's never too early to learn the right kind of lessons from a conflict. And the lesson here is that obviously Vladimir Putin is responsible for aggression. It is clear that he is responsible for war crimes because there's so much uh, accruing evidence. But at the same time, we also bear some responsibility. We also need to understand how we let Ukraine down how Ukraine did have assurances, according to the Budapest Memorandum in 19, sorry, uh, that was uh, in 1994, that if they gave up what was at that point the third largest nuclear arsenal, uh, their territorial integrity would be respected. So it's not as if Ukraine was asking unreasonable uh, questions and that they were not entitled to any help whatsoever. And I think that was a mistake. That's what we need to do to examine where we, in fact, have allowed Western deterrence to fail. What's the, the mindset, do you think, at this point, uh, Professor, of, of NATO? Uh, you know, they've, they've talked about trying to, to fulfill some of these requests from uh, President Zelensky so that uh, Ukraine will not lose this war. But not losing is not winning. Uh, we know that, that the Ukraine troops have made some some advancements, of course, and in some areas of the country. Uh, you know, we applaud the fact that you know they seem to have defended Kiev so far, but that doesn't mean it won't come under future attack. Can Ukraine actually win this war? I, I'm and and I, you know, a lot of people are now using that word instead of not losing it. Uh, that's going to take an awfully large counteroffensive at some point, isn't it, to try to move the Russians out? It would be very difficult because right now. In the East, the Russians are slowly grinding uh, under some of the Ukrainian units and they have no moral constraints. The Russian forces have been bombing hospitals and schools and cultural institutions and that kind of brutality, the brutality that they exhibited in Syria, in Grozny within Russia itself, as appalling as that is, as much as it is a violation of international humanitarian law, it is at times effective. And that is the reality that Ukraine has to face. And President Zelensky talked about the large Ukrainian losses in terms of troops. These are terrible losses for the Ukrainian people on top of the vast civilian losses. But NATO is not entirely united. There's the impression of unity. But I would suggest that we should look carefully are the statements and policies of two key NATO leaders, Boris Johnson of Britain and Emmanuel Macron of France. Boris Johnson is saying, and he said this very early on, and he formulated a strategy, 
which he expressed by saying that Vladimir Putin's invasion must fail and must be seen to fail. That is, Ukraine needs to win. And Britain has sent over massive quantities of armaments early and continues that. Now, Emmanuel Macron, who has had endless conversations with Vladimir Putin that have led nowhere except possibly to embolden the Russian leader, is also now sending some weapons, an increasing number of weapons, to uh, Ukraine. But at the same time, he has said that Russia must not be humiliated. And this begs the question, if Russia is the aggressor, if Vladimir Putin is committing war crimes, and yes, we want to avoid a nuclear conflict, we want to avoid an all-out war, but what is this about not humiliating Vladimir Putin? It implies that there has to be a limitation on what Ukraine would be allowed to do. So this is where you get these kind of suggestions that, well, yes, Ukraine would be allowed to make some advances. They would be given enough weapons to push the Russians back a little bit, but not to liberate all of their territory. Uh, that uh, uh, we somehow have to figure out an off-ramp for, uh, for Vladimir Putin, rather than Vladimir Putin doing that, or his military and security leaders coming to the conclusion that this uh, aggression was so costly to Russia that they need to remove Putin. And that's, I think, what's raising a lot of questions about, the, for instance, the U.S. commitment to this. Uh, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was uh, talking about Ukraine winning the war. Uh, but other military experts have suggested that, look, at the United States has uh, some retired uh, military equipment. I mean, we're talking about jets. We're talking about, you know, large anti-aircraft that they're sitting someplace. I mean, they haven't been destroyed yet. Uh, yet they haven't offered those to Ukraine. And you have to wonder if, if as you say, this is a, a very limited war, that they're got, not going to give Ukraine everything they need because they, they, they don't want to see Ukraine, as you say, push Russia back and be and have Putin be humiliated. So uh, that, that kind of mindset and that kind of inaction right now raises some questions about how dedicated they are, like you say, to total victory, which I'm sure is what Ukraine would like to see. It's a matter of finding the right kind of balance. Yeah. Uh, it would be unwise for the West to act in a reckless fashion. There should be no gratuitous provocation. But there is a reality. It's not as if we say we don't want to make Vladimir Putin angry. Well, he has invaded Ukraine already. He is already angry. Uh, what uh, is the cost that we are willing to inflict on, on Vladimir Putin? We have to right-size Russia as well that Russia is not a superpower. It is not Russia uh, that is with infinite capabilities. The Russian military is not 10 feet tall. Yes, it is not two feet tall, and we should be cautious and we should understand that reality on the ground. But that kind of balance is absolutely essential of having Russia emerge from this conflict weakened, having Russia the leadership, and eventually, sadly, even the population understand how catastrophic this has been, not only for the people of Ukraine, but also ultimately for Russia as well, so as to deter this kind of action. The settlement cannot be a new frozen conflict, which Russia can then unfreeze at will, because this has been one of the problems, that there was this frozen conflict uh, in the case of the eastern part of Ukraine and exactly. Crimea. There's a frozen conflict in Moldova, in Transnistria. Uh, 
There's one in Nagorno-Karabakh. There's one in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And these just allow Russia to reignite conflict at will. Well, we'll have to leave it here, Professor. Uh, time is limited, unfortunately. I always appreciate your input and insight into this. Thank you so much for this. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Professor Oral Brown from uh, University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots going on, of course, and we just heard from uh, one of the reporters on the scene, of course, in San Antonio, Texas, investigating uh, what happened with that horrific school shooting. But uh, we also want to talk about security and national security. And, uh, well, there's a new report out coming uh, from the University of Ottawa that uh, is uh, pointing the finger at, at Canadian authorities on this and uh, suggesting that Canada is not prepared for national security threats. Now, the Prime Minister has responded to this and saying uh, that we're working with national security organizations so they can be prepared for the next domestic or international conflict. Global's Kyle Benning has the details. Justin Trudeau says the world has changed, and now so do security and intelligence agencies. The new report from the University of Ottawa is named a national security strategy for the 2020s and outlines dozens of recommendations to bring those agencies up to speed. Trudeau says the conversations have started. There are a whole new set of challenges that uh, we need to be responding to, and that's why we're working closely with our national security agencies. One of the report's organizers says Canada is in a position of vulnerability when it comes to foreign intelligence because of how much Ottawa depends on the U.S. Thomas Juno notes in a time of political instability, the government should look into ensuring its security apparatus is functioning the best it can. Kyle Benning, Global News. Well, it's about time. Uh, this report is quite succinct in suggesting that Canada is way behind the times, and, and that puts us at risk, quite frankly. Joining us to talk about this is Phil Gursky. Phil, of course, is president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, a uh, distinguished fellow at the University of Ottawa Security Program, and, of course, former uh, CSIS analyst and author, by the way, of a number of books uh, about uh, national security. Uh, Phil, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. How are you today? Good. Uh, <laughs> As I was reading over the uh, the highlights of this report yesterday, Phil, I kept thinking, uh, Phil's talked to me about this over the last three or four years. We, <laughs> it's, it's, finally, somebody has shed some light on this. I don't know why they weren't listening to you before, but every one of these talking points here are things that you have discussed uh, in great detail about uh, what Canada needs to do right now. Uh, have the folks up in Ottawa finally seen the light? Oh, I sincerely hope so, Bill. You know, as you said, you and I have had many conversations over the years, and one thing that was very frustrating for those of us who worked in national security, whether it was at CSC, the Signals Intelligence Organization, where it was before I went to CSIS or the RCMP or DND, you know, we would provide the best intelligence we could and the best analysis and the best advice we can to governments in accordance with our mandates. And we just found that it was either ignored or pushed aside or it was inconvenient. Um, to cite one small example, Bill, and again, we've talked about this in the past. We've been warning about Chinese interference in Canadian affairs for more than two and a half decades. And yet, you know, we, governments just didn't seem to care. You know, maybe it was more important to trade with China and support Canadian businesses making money in China than it was to worry about Chinese infiltrating our democracy. So, yeah, it's a wake up call, but it's one that we've been giving for a very long time, my friend. Well, this is a concern I've got right now. I mean, this this report basically says here's what's wrong and here's what you kind of need to do to fix this. Uh, and as you mentioned, you've been supplying them with that information. Is this going to be a two-day news story and then just get shoved in the bottom drawer someplace? Because the threats are real. As I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning at 8.30, uh, a lot of the stuff in this report talked about, we've already experienced 
-hmm. Chinese interference, as you say, you've been talking about that for over 25 years, uh, but there are realities, you know, the, the detainment of the two Michaels, uh, the, the embargo on, on, on Canadian products, the fact that Russia's just built an icebreaker, or, or not, and, and so is China, for that matter, claiming sovereignty or wanting to claim sovereignty in, in, in our properties there, the mineral-rich Canadian Arctic. Uh, you know, it's happening all the way around us right now. You know, and uh, we naively going to say, boy, that's terrible what's going on in the Ukraine with Russia. Uh, you know, totally oblivious to the fact that Russia's already claiming part of northern Canada to be theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, an invasion waiting to happen, I guess, in situations like this. But we got to wake up to this stuff. We do. And I, I do fear that it's a report that will be, it's made a bit of a splash over the past couple of days. It's gotten covers in all the major news sources and it's going to, you know, be on a shelf and it's going to gather dust like, like previous ones. But by the way, Bill, I'm not a geographer, but why does China have a claim on the Arctic? Because last time I consulted an atlas, it has no border on anything Arctic, uh, Arctic related, but no, you know, this is my concern is that security intelligence and law enforcement, we do our jobs, you know, Monday through Sunday, 24 hours a day, providing the best information possible. It doesn't really matter whether there's a review or not. I mean, we have our mandates, we have our legislation. Let's just hope this is a wake up call. But I, I, um, I hate to be I, I'm a glass half full kind of guy normally, Bill. But I, but I gotta but I gotta confess to you, I, I do think that, you know, the prime minister said it was gonna be changes, but National security and intelligence had never been priorities. We don't have the intelligence culture our allies do, like in Australia and, and United Kingdom, United States. So, my my fear is is that it will, you know, it makes a splash and then ho hum. No, how, how how about the Blue Jays? By the way, you know, it, it'll go on to something else. Well, and the report talks about that the reliance uh, on, on just not just the Five Eyes, but even on the Americans. I want to get into that. In, in further detail in just a couple of seconds as well. But the other one that jumped out at me, because again, here's something that Canada has experienced, is allowing the Chinese government and, and other Chinese agencies uh, to buy into the intellectual property at universities. They give these guys gobs of money and says, let us work with you, but we're going to retain the rights to, to the stuff that's going to be developed here. Uh, that's, that's aiding and abetting, isn't it? I'm really glad you've raised that, and and you know that I'm a terrorism guy, not a uh, not a China specialist. Yeah. But again, uh, this is something that was blatantly obvious, and again, things that we warned about. I had colleagues who worked the China task at CSIS, and they've been saying this for a very very long time. So you know, this to say, wake up and say, oh my God, look what China's doing. Well, no, you've been telling you about that, you know, you know, for for decades, kind of now. So it, again, it it speaks to this issue that I don't think governments understand. The nature of the threat. I don't think they understand the intelligence that's being given. I have no idea why, because we make it as plain as a nose on your face. But yeah, it's it, it is it's time that people start uh, noticing this stuff and acting on it. And I just hope that maybe there are smarter leaders and smarter government officials that finally get it. Well, and it, it's a matter of standing up and simply saying, and you know, this is wrong, as opposed to I really don't think that was such a smart idea, like you know, allowing the Iranian soccer team to go and play a friendly over in, on the West Coast. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be at odds with you, uh, with these guys right now, but you know, it, 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 it's going to take some political courage to say mm -hmm. enough is enough. We're not going to do this anymore, and and that's the concern I've got right now, because as you say, for generations now, Canadian politicians of all stripes, by the way. Yes, have basically, you know, said, well, that's that's a damn shame. I don't know how about those Blue Jays. They don't seem to want to act on it. And uh, uh, and 
one of the messages from this report, of course, I, I know you've seen the overview and then read the report, is, is basically stop relying on other people that have seen the threat and are doing something about it. They're not always going to have your back. And, and the, the prime example, of, well, two of them that they mentioned in the report, one is the Five Eyes, and you've told us about this in the past. They have far greater technology and far more tools uh, to deal with security issues than Canada does. We don't buy into that. We don't invest in that. We simply rely on them. And the, and the report says you can't do that anymore. You got to be a player if, if you want this, because there's going to be a certain resentment, of course, by Canada simply saying, hey, you know what, you're just mooching off, off our work and our intelligence here. And the other is the United States. And, and they're still our closest neighbor and our biggest trading partner. And we love them dearly. Uh, but with the message we're getting out of Washington, I guess, in the last couple of years, or last administration for sure, is that look at, uh, yeah, we love you too, but, uh, you know, we've got our own issues here. Uh, and you got to pull your own weight uh, when it comes to security issues and, and defense issues. And it, it's a legitimate beef right now that Canada has to address. 100%. And we've known this for a very long time that we were receivers, not givers. You know, after the end of the Second World War, Bill, we really were a major international player. And within the five eyes, this is the Anglo network we talked about. So United Kingdom, yeah. United States, New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. We were comfortably in, in the third position after the UK and, and the United States. We are now behind the Australians and thankfully ahead of the New Zealanders because they're so much smaller than we are. But no, it, we haven't been pulling our weight. We, we receive a lot more than we give. And and as well, I, I you know, one of my, um, I guess, wake-up calls for me personally when I moved from CSE, which is a very much a Five Eyes organization, or was when I was there, to CSIS, is that there are many other countries with which we share intelligence, like Western European partners, especially on terrorism files and espionage files. So we have to work with our allies, not just the Five Eyes. We have to uh, be much more open with what we, we can share with them. We, we can give them what we know and our analysis and our perspectives on things so we can get something in return. But yeah, you're only going to get, give if you get, get, if you give. And we've been very, very remiss in that regard in a very long time, such that Canada, I think is seen as a bit player. And that's, that's not a good thing when you work in intelligence. So it's, what do we do? I mean, they're talking about forming an independent body for oversight on this and basically taking some of the, the, the decision-making away from elected officials, which is not a bad idea, I suppose. Uh, but it's only going to be as effective as the government's support for this. And by that, we mean money. Uh, you know, it's going to cost an awful lot of money for us to play catch up and be where our partners want us to be right now. Uh, and I don't know what that dollar figure is, but let's talk about the price of not doing it. Well, you know, making one more body is not going to resolve the issue for the reasons you cited, Bill. I mean, it takes the government to actually believe in the body and, and to do something with it. I would say, well, why would you why why create another bureaucratic nightmare when you've got organizations that have been around in the case of the RCMP for 150 years, CSIS for almost 40 years now, CSE since the end of the Second World War, very capable organizations, just staff them, give them the resources, the money they need to hire more people, hire more young women and men, great Canadians that want to help keep their country safe and allow them to, to carry out their mandates. It's not so much a you know an, over, an oversight issue. The over, I mean, we are oversighted to death, Bill. The CSIS Act alone. Uh, a fully one third of it is devoted to oversight, which is just incredible. It's typically Canadian. So no, I don't. We need another. We don't need another government body. We need a government to believe. And this is and this is critically important because I think there's been some some sort of slip slipping in the last couple of years. These organizations must remain neutral from government. They must remain. They can. They do what they do 
and they have to inform government to the best of their abilities. We don't need governments telling them what to do. They have their mandates. They know what they're doing, because when we see political interference in terms of how you word things and what you focus on, that's the last thing we need is elected officials who don't know anything about national security telling CSIS, the RCMP and CSE what to do. So we have the organizations. Just make sure that they're fully staffed. Well, that's one of the other things the report talks about is uh, they're, they're calling for more uh, confidential briefings for uh, MPs. I mean, if you, these guys are going to control the purse strings, bring them into the discussion here so they have a fuller understanding of what's going on in the world. Would that help? Well, with all due respect, we've been briefing MPs and, and, and senior ministers for, for eons. And again, I was present at certain meetings and people just dismissed the message because it was inconvenient. So when you tell the government that China is interfering in universities and, and with with patents and trying to get involved in Canadian affairs for Chinese interests, not Canadian interests, we were told, oh, well, it's very nice. Now go back and play in the sandbox. So I, how many briefings do you want? I mean, I, I will give CSC especially credit. The CSC that I worked for, Bill, was not very public. And they've become a lot more open to Canadians, which is great because they're a great organization with lots of great information. The information is there. It's being shared. I don't know what more briefings do. I, I, you can only, you know, go to the, pul- the pulpit so many times, Bill, and then you become frustrated because your message is not being heard. So, you know, let us do our jobs. Yes, we'll brief you, you know, as often as you would like, but at least pay some attention to our message. Now, I know there are other considerations to be taken in. You know, there, I mean, there's international affairs and relations, things like that. But if your intelligence isn't the backbone of, of your decision making, then why have an intelligence structure in the first place? Well, and therein lies the problem, I guess, is... is... You know, do these guys even open a newspaper? I mean, look what's going on in the world these days. And that's why this report is so timely right now uh, that, you know, in the past, you know, well, that's a war that's over there. You know, that's not going to have a direct impact on Canada. Yeah, it is. Uh, And we haven't even talked about, uh, about, you know, uh, national terrorism right here in this country and the fact that those people are still around. uh, And thank God we're keeping an eye on them, but probably not to the degree that we should uh, in many situations. And and we haven't even talked about the impact of the far right uh, in both countries, the United States and Canada. Clearly, uh, we saw from the protests at the border points uh, this past winter uh, that those far right groups are having an influence on, on the Canadian system here. Uh, and we just seem to be, yeah, that we got to watch that. No, we don't have to watch it. We have to do something about it. Exactly. And to raise you, I, I want to pick up on something you mentioned, Bill. You know, things that happen over there eventually happen over here. And I've been reading a lot about what's happening in Afghanistan lately. And some pretty senior in-the-know U.S. military officials and intelligence officials are saying that Al-Qaeda, remember Al-Qaeda, the group that we kind of thought had disappeared? Yep. Yep. Well, Al-Qaeda probably will have a, a capability of attacking the continental United States within 12 to 18 months. Who would have thunk that 20 years after 9-11? So, yeah, things that happen far away from Canada, maybe which our MPs and average Canadians don't care about, don't read about, do have a nasty habit of developing, uh, you know, under our radar, although if you if your radar is wide enough, they actually are on your radar. And then they happen. They say, well, how did we see that coming? Well, if you've been looking for it, you would have saw it coming in the first place. So, you know, we're part of international community in terms of trade, in terms of diplomatic relations. We need to do a better job of, of looking what's happening around the world, dealing with our allies and the intelligence and military spheres. We're all on the same side. We want to pre- prevent bad things from happening. And let's use these alliances to the best of our ability. But I don't know, Bill, um, Canadians are nice. <laughs> We're wonderful people, but we don't tend to take a lot of things seriously because, well, maybe the Americans will take care of it. Well, maybe they won't. And, and why should we put all of our eggs in the American basket? As you said, the previous administration wasn't exactly very Canada friendly, was it? No, and who knows exactly. what's going to happen down the road? So now we got to pull up our socks, Bill. And that really involves uh, governments, involves MPs and MPPs. 
And as I said, and I'll say it ad nauseum, and I apologize for being repetitive, staff the security services to the best of your ability so they can do, do their mandated jobs to help Canadians. Uh, that's the message, and that's the message you've been preaching for a number of years now, Phil. Uh, thanks so much for the time today, and uh, uh, I, I don't want this thing to fall into somebody's bottom drawer or into somebody's blue box. I mean, Canadian governments have to start responding to this. Uh, stay well, my friend, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Okay, you take care, Bill. You too. Phil Gursky, of course, uh, with his concerns. And as we mentioned, he's been talking about this for a long, long time right now. Uh, and MPs have got to start listening uh, to what's going on here. You want to cut taxes. You want to cut spending. This is one of the first areas they always look at. It's national security. And it's not just something that's happening over there. It's happening right here. And we have to be cognizant of that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have a uh, food problem, a food distribution problem. Now, I know we've been talking about this in varying degrees, well, since the pandemic started, of course, and the lockdowns, and we know about supply chain uh, hiccups and problems that are going on there. But a professor of food distribution at Dalhousie University says the world is looking at a sequence of events that are pushing prices higher. Uh, They include the war in Ukraine, certainly, higher energy prices, and, uh, well, nationalistic protectionism. Uh, This is Dr. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois. Uh, who has uh, made these comments in the past. Here's a little bit of what uh, the good doctor has to say. We're seeing more countries panicking and hoarding food. Uh, India this week decided to stop uh, exporting wheat. A few weeks ago, it was Indonesia with palm oil. Uh, That's only going to continue because uh, we are looking at a global food security crisis. So there's that element of it, uh, but there's a lot more to this. It's a very complex problem, and uh, there are some who would suggest that, look at what's going on there when you see empty shelves. That would, okay, that could well be supply chain issues, and there could be a number of other factors, uh, but it goes deeper than that, and some people are suggesting that uh, the fact that people are living near the poverty line right now uh, and simply can't afford this is a contributing factor. In other words, uh, is the food shortage uh, one of the symptoms and not the real problem? Let's delve into this, if we could, uh, with our next guest. Uh, Mike Van Massow is the OAC Chair in Food System Leadership and an Associate Professor in uh, Food Agriculture and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. Uh, Mike, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this. Well, thank you for having me. I, I saw the comments, and I'm sure you've read them too, Mike, from um, uh, Maple Leaf CEO Michael McCain, who's been very outspoken about this over the last little while and suggesting that, look at the problem here, in part, is that there are people and many people in our communities right now that can't afford food. Uh, and yeah, that's because of inflation, et cetera. But there are some social economic reasons for this, too, uh, which doesn't get talked about a whole lot. Should that be part of the discussion? Oh, I think without a doubt. You know, we have some short term disruptions in uh, in food supply that we saw through the pandemic and we'll have occasional shortages on the shelf. We're seeing baby formula now and and things for a variety of reasons. But there is this fundamental issue in Canada. Food security is driven more by income or the ability to buy food than it is about the than than it is the availability of food and that's being made worse now not just by the price increases of food but the price increases uh, for everything else rents going up you, you know cost of commuting is going up so we have people making real choices between uh, you know buying food or paying rent this month and 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 so those are real um real food security issues driven by uh driven by low income and not by the availability of food 
Uh, one report I saw about this last night uh, estimates about 16% of Canadians live in food insecure household. That, that number is too high. That number is really too high, and it's probably getting higher under the current circumstances rather than lower. Like, as I said, there are people who just are making hard, cho you know, those of us who are lucky enough to have good jobs, uh, Bill, are, 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 are noticing it at the grocery store, but we're not making the hard choices between, you know, keeping the lights on and, and feeding the kids. And, and that number is too high and unfortunately is likely getting higher. And I know I'm oversimplifying it, but, you know, there's basically two classes of people when we're dealing with inflationary prices. I mean, those that are ticked off about it, uh, but can still afford it, but they're going to do so, you know, you know, grumbling. And those who simply say, well, I can't buy that now. That's all there is to it. And and I know in the past, you know, we've, we've had ministers, uh, government ministers say, well, uh, and you've heard these stories. Remember, go buy, go buy the dented can stuff. It's a lot cheaper. Go buy the, uh, the two-day-old bananas. You know, maybe they're a little soft and they're, they're kind of dark, but they're still edible, things like that. And they're, they're overlooking the fact that these people just don't have the money available to them to be able to buy and eat properly. And it, it's, it's something that a lot of people are turning their back on right now, but it seems to be a growing problem, especially now with this inflation that we're facing. Well, you're exactly right. You know, there are strategies we can do to stretch our food dollar. But what we forget are is that these people who are food insecure are doing all of those things already, right? Yeah. It's 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 easy to say, oh, we'll do this or do that. But if you're doing all of those things and you're still coming up short, that's I think where we're where 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 the real issue lies. It's this it's it's this lack of both empathy and understanding. Uh, to 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 really see how tough it is for some of these uh, households uh, to 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 get enough to eat, to get enough nutrition, and I think the long term societal costs of that are, are really high. And there's so many aspects to this too. Uh, and you mentioned just a few minutes ago, but you know, a lot of people are still doing this, and, and that comes down to, I guess, you know, some some ideas about it, what to do. I mean, you know, the financial training, uh, financial planning, uh, which, you know, should be taught in school starting in elementary school, and it, it most times isn't. Uh, nutritional uh, education about what you can buy and can't buy and, and substitutes for something that maybe you can't afford anymore to still get the proper nutrition into the body. I mean, that has to be part of the process too, doesn't it? Well, you know, uh, I'm going to sound like a grumpy old guy uh, here a little <laughs> bit, Bill. But, I've been, but I don't but, worry, I've been accused of that too, Mike. Don't worry. Yeah, but 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 you know, basic financial literacy, but also uh, food literacy is is not just what to buy, where to buy, what's healthy, what's not healthy, but how to prepare food. Uh, you know, I you know when I was when you know way back when, Bill, when I was a high school student, we we had two semesters of basic cooking skills, and we learned some of these basics. And and if we have that, again, it's not the only answer, but it does make it easier to to have at least some more choice uh, and to prepare healthy food, uh, uh, healthy meals. It, it doesn't deal fundamentally with the issue of insufficient income, but some of those basic skills can make us more resilient and more food secure when times are tough. Well, and there's a two-sided element to this, too. I, mean, I can remember, Mike, some years ago now, uh, going into the grocery stores and actually seeing uh, little groups of people, five, six people being led around by 
some basically going up and down each aisle saying, "Look at here's this, here's an alternative to this." Basically, it was food education, as you just mentioned. Yeah. I'm not seeing that anymore. I don't know if they've, if they've dropped that uh, that whole concept, that idea. But it, it, I thought it was an invaluable way for people to actually get some knowledge as to what they can actually do with a limited amount of money. But and, and now, before I get you to respond to that, the other element is we still have to have that discussion about the fact that they don't have enough money. And, and that could be for a number of reasons. You know, there have been a number of government initiatives that have been uh, uh, proposed over the years, like basic income, things of this nature, you know, ODSP payments, things of that. And governments basically are, seem unwilling uh, to be able to say, okay, yeah, maybe we need to, to top these numbers up so that people do have that disposable income. That's got to be part of the discussion, too. I know it's uncomfortable for politicians to have that discussion, but that's one of the realities, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. You know, whether it's Ontario Works or ODSP or 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 or, or whatever, and, and I, I would argue that, I mean, those, those people for sure, we've seen uh, despite significant inflation, we haven't seen anyone's uh, uh, haven't seen their levels of payment go up. But there's also this significant uh, body of of working poor, you know, people who are making minimum wage, who are seeing their rents go up, who are seeing all these food prices go up, but not seeing minimum. And so, like I said, my my dollar isn't going as far, but I've got a good salary, and you know, I have to make some choices but i'm not making choices that 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 mean i don't get enough to eat but if you're making 15 16 17 dollars an hour and it's costing you more to get to work and uh, and food has gone up eight percent or nine percent in the last year these are the people who who it's not only the people who are in support but the people who are the working poor who are who are feeling it as well so yeah it, it, it's not something that gets a lot of attention Often, um, we we uh, we we hear about it in things like the provincial election now, uh, but we often don't see a lot of action once we get uh, once we once we get past the election uh, and other priorities become become to the front. Well, you know that uh, Hamilton was one of the pilot projects uh, when the the Wynn government tried to uh, uh, get going with this uh, basic income pro and and we talked to a lot of the people that were organizing it in the Hamilton area and then uh, some months later on we talked about uh, w with some people that actually had benefited from that had applied for it and you know done all the uh, the applications etc and the stories are amazing and I know you know this Mike but just to remind our listeners if you give them the money to be able to, to survive in this community and to be able to pay their rent and get groceries, that's exactly what they do. They don't take that extra money and invest it in Cayman Islands accounts. They don't have that stuff. They spend it locally. So it's beneficial to small business, and it's certainly beneficial to these people. You know, the, the old, what's the old cliche? You know, they need a hand up, not a hand out. And, and most what? of them benefit from that situation. But again, it's, that's a government decision. Yeah, and, and 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 what it's important to remember is is there will be people who take advantage of the situation. That's that that I mean that's that that's without a doubt. But as you say, that giving someone the 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 boost to start often is the stepping stone to to getting on to other work. Right? You get them stable housing. You get them having enough to eat and then they have the security to go out and get a job that that allows them to to go beyond the government support it's that uh, hand up rather than hand out and so while it's easy to point at at sort of the examples where someone takes advantage of it 
those pilots showed how how much they can really give people the boost and get people work, get get people out and being productive and investing in the economy and the local economy. Well, and there's another, uh, maybe say, uncomfortable truth here, I guess, that I, I want to bring up into this conversation, because we've talked about government assistance programs, and, and we certainly need to have that discussion about things like basic income and, and top-ups for other social services. But employers have a role to play here, too, don't they, Mike? I mean, I, even as you say, if the working poor, uh, let's do something about that and, and ensure that, uh, you know, if you're an employer, that the people that are working for you uh, have a living wage, a, a wage that they can actually exist you know, too many people just get paid minimum wage or, you know, whatever they can get away with paying them. A lot of companies right now don't offer benefit packages, and that's something else, an added burden. They have to go out and find their own uh, drug plans, dental plans, things of this nature. There are a number of great employers, as, as we know, right across this province that do these sorts of things and look after the employees. But there are some who don't, and that's putting those employees in a rather precarious position. Well, it, 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 it's exactly right. And I think it's incumbent on on the rest of us as consumers to vote with our dollars, right? You, you know, many things that that are cheap, restaurant meals, uh, even many of our food products are 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 relatively cheap because the people who are producing them uh, aren't 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 paid very well, and so we've got this this systemic issue that we have this expectation. So if we make choices and, and vote with our dollars uh, on, on companies that, that talk about living wage and on, on paying people enough, uh, it, it's, it's, it's incumbent on us as consumers to say, yes, uh, we should be paying more. It, you know, it's, it, in inflationary times, it's hard. But the fact that things are as cheap as they are is because many people working in those industries aren't getting paid very well. So, so I think we have to not only look at those employers, but look at ourselves and, and how we spend our dollars. Well, you remember the debate uh, when the Ontario government, I guess this was about seven, eight years ago now, uh, raised the minimum wage and, and they were going to do it incrementally. And I, I know Doug Ford's talking about doing that now, although I, I think you could use a little more uh, cash in, in the program. But the, the the outcry at that time was you can't do that. Small businesses are going to go under. They can't afford the added expense. And the government went ahead and did it anyway because they'd done the research. And the reality is, we found out later on, uh, most a lot of those small businesses actually had to hire more people because their business had increased significantly. Because that, as you say, you had more disposable income. So people would do those sorts of things. And, and you know, and there's always going to be someone who's going to grumble and say, yeah, the cup of coffee, it's gone up 15 cents. That's ridiculous. I, I'll pay the extra 15 cents if it means that somebody else can actually put food on their table. Uh, you know, there, there's got to be some, some concern here for the others that are existing like this. And I think most of us, I think, are, are agreeable to that. Uh, but you know, again, that that's gonna—that's a corporate decision, and these these people have to be cognizant of that. And again, I'm not gonna paint them all with the same brush because most of them do, many of them do, but some don't. And there have to be some standards. And and as you say, vote with your dollars. You know, if you know that that's going on with that particular company, don't spend your money there. Yep. And you know, there's a large body of research that I would say the 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 predominant result of that research is as we raise minimum wage employment goes up and not the reverse and might will there be companies just as i said there are people who abuse will there be outliers who who struggle yes 
and and whenever we do things like this, that 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 will be the case. But generally, when you look at some of these U.S. cities that have raised minimum wages within the within the city, employment's gone up, uh, businesses uh, have have done better. It, it's just taking the jump and and realizing the opportunity. And, and and you know we're not talking about a huge bunch. I mean, some companies do profit sharing, and that's that's a great idea. And a lot of the employers uh, seem to enjoy that sort of thing. And we've got some major employers that do that. But incremental raises and things of this nature, understanding that uh, it's an investment in that that listener. Because I've I've heard, and I know you have, especially since the pandemic. One of the legitimate beefs from an awful lot of small businesses right now. First of all, they can't get enough staff. Uh, and they can't retain them. Well, that's because you know if you're not making decent money, you're looking for another job. Well, you know while you're serving coffee or stacking shelves in a grocery store, whatever the case might be, uh, if you're not making ends meet, then you're looking for all, all ways to to try to supplement your income or to increase your income one way or another. You can avoid those two problems if you just get good people and pay them properly. Yep, turnover costs you money. You train people, yeah. you invest in them, and, and then they leave because someone else gives them a, a few hundred bucks as a signing bonus. That you know, employee churn costs companies money, and 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 again, it, companies that invest and support and train and uh, and and do those sorts of things with their employees have them stay around longer. You know, I, I was talking to someone earlier today about about restaurants. And if you think your your favorite local restaurant, one of the things you love about it is not just the good food, but the fact that you know that server's name and they ask you how your kids are doing and you have that conversation. There's real value in having people having some stability in your workforce in in the eyes of your customers. And I think we forget that a, a lot. Uh, you know, what a penny wise and pound foolish. Well, it's a discussion that has to be had here, and, and, and I'm not trying to be flippant here, but you and I both know, we've been around the block a couple of times, the supply chain problems are going to get worked out. I, you know, when there's still some, some blips there, and that's got to be worked out, and we, I'm not trying to you know, dismiss that. It's, it's a concern. But if the other elements that we just talked about don't get addressed, uh, it doesn't matter how much stuff you have on the shelves. If people can't walk in the store and buy it, uh, you know, we're still going to have an economic crisis here. So uh, there's... We all have a part to play here with where we spend our money and with employers uh, about how they compensate their employees. Uh, great discussion on this, Mike, and thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Bill, and looking forward to chatting again. You betcha. Hopefully with some better news about this. Take care, Mike. Mike yep, Barnett, of course, uh, who's the OIC Chair in Food System Leadership and, of course, a prof in Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.